Well, good morning again. If you have your Bibles, if you would, turn to the book of Habakkuk. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And Jan over here will bring one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anyone need a Bible? And Kevin's over here. Jan's got a cover, Kevin. She's got a couple of Bibles in her hand. Sandwiched between Nahum and Zephaniah, the fifth book in from the end of the Old Testament, book of Habakkuk. We looked at it two weeks ago, and we're going to continue our uh, studies through it. We left off in verse 4 of chapter 2, but I want you to know that this morning we're going to go back to chapter 1. And we're going to look at a few things in chapter 1, and we'll eventually finish up chapter 2, but... We will not get to verses 5 through 20 to the very end of the study. So if you're going, man, it's getting late. When's he going to get to these verses? It's just kind of an overview. We will get to them, and you'll see as we go along. But Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 5 through 20, but we're going to start in verse 1. So uh, with that, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word and how, Holy Spirit, as we study your word, you Give to us meaning and application in our lives. And Lord, we are open to receive all that you have for us this morning. Lord, help us to, uh, to be alert, Lord, to the things, the truths that you want to teach us today. Father, we do pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you this morning. They're not born again today. Lord, would you especially speak to their hearts and show them their need for salvation. So we commit our time to you, Lord. Ask that you would bless it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there are certain questions out there that I found that uh, we simply do not have answers to. For example, why is it that you press harder on a remote control when you know that the battery is dead? I kind of point it closer to the TV. It's like if I press harder, it's going to work. Why is it people say they slept like a baby when babies wake up ten times every hour? How about this one? Why is lemon juice made with artificial flavoring, but dishwashing liquid is made with real lemons? Why is the man who invests your money called a broker? How about this one? Is there another word for synonym? Some of these you've got to think on. Okay, this one. If instead of talking to your plants, you yelled at them, would they still grow only to be troubled and insecure? How about this one? What should you do when you see an endangered animal eating an endangered plant? <laughs> Two more. <laughs> you go, praise God. Uh, <clears throat> if there was a three-hour cruise, why did Mrs. Howell have so many clothes with her? And finally, what would happen if there were no hypothetical questions? I thought that was a funny. I saved that one for last, but okay. My point is, and you're going, what's your point? My point is, Habakkuk had questions. And we pointed out last time together, the same questions he had are the same ones we have today. I mean, have you ever looked out upon our world with all the injustices we see and all the sin that's happening and asked, why doesn't God do something about it? Especially as we look around our world and it looks as though the wicked are prospering and the righteous, they're the ones that are suffering. Godly people are praying, but it seems as though their prayers are not doing any good. 
That was a problem that Habakkuk was facing during his time, but it was also solved, as we will see. Because in these three short chapters, we see how this prophet faced his doubts and found certainty in his faith. This little book opens in gloom and ends with glory. It begins with a question mark and ends with an exclamation point. It begins with fear and ends with faith. Now, by way of reminder, Habakkuk is at the same time as Jeremiah the prophet. Pastor Dennis was here last week. He, he spoke out of Jer- the book of Jeremiah. We're in that same time period. The northern kingdom had already come down and, and was taken into captivity, rather. The southern kingdom was right on the verge of captivity by the Chaldeans, or better known as the Babylonians. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, confused. Number two, committed. And number three, comforted. First, confused. Habakkuk was confused. He looked across his world, his, his, his country, and, and his day and saw violence and justice and strife and contention. Of his own people, laws were not being enforced. There was no legal protection for innocent people, and, 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 and the guilty were getting off scot-free. The courts were being manipulated by the selfish lawyers and cruel officials. The whole nation was suffering because of the evils of the government. And yet, to Habakkuk, God seemed to be doing nothing about it. Along with these internal problems, again, was the evil Babylonian Empire breathing down their necks, just waiting to come in and swoop them up as a nation. So Habakkuk, seeing all this going on, asked this question. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. He asked of the Lord, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention that arises. Therefore the law is powerless. Justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgments proceed. He's saying, God, I don't get what's going on. I'm going through all these struggles and, and having to see this happening for our nation. It, it's a problem to me and our people. Well, then God answered him, and we looked at it, but not with exactly the answer that I think Habakkuk was hoping for. Because in verses 5 through 11 of chapter 1, God answers and says, Listen, Habakkuk, I'm going to do a work that you would not believe, even if I told you, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you anyway. (laughs) I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, who will conquer your nation, and they will be my instrument of discipline for my people. Well, that just left Habakkuk with even more questions and more confusion. And I think sometimes that happens in our lives. You know, spiritually, we're often not sure what's going on and we're facing struggles. Or we're going through some heavy trial in our lives. And the Lord may answer us as we pray, but then the answer leads us even with more questions. Well, I see why you did that, God, but then why is this happening? Why is that happening? But see, the Lord would say to us this morning, even though you don't understand, know that our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working a far more exceedingly and weight of glory, as Paul would say. The point is, even when it seems that God isn't making sense and He's not there, He's working and He's moving in your life. The Bible says in Psalm 121.3, He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. God is aware of what's going on in your life. And he has a plan and a purpose to see you through it. All things really do work together for good to those that love God and are the called according to his purpose. So my encouragement is don't lose hope. 
You see, Habakkuk was searching for answers. God revealed to him in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1 with an answer that he wasn't expecting. Because here we read that God uh, described to him that this, these dreadful Chaldeans, the Babylonians, they're going to come against his nation. And he described them as bitter and swift, and they were going to uh, swoop down as an eagle swoops down for the kill. Now, Habakkuk didn't need to be told that. He knew the terror of the Chaldeans, but, but he was still confused, still had questions. Because instead of, God, why aren't you doing something? Now the question was, God, why are you doing that? He didn't like that. He wanted to know how God could use such a sinful nation like the Chaldeans to punish his own people, the Jews. Couldn't understand. So he asked another question in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. He asked, how can a holy God sit and watch his own people being caught like a fish or trampled like insects? He says, if you allow this, God, the Chaldeans, they're going to boast. Our gods have given us the victory. Jehovah is not the true God. You see, Habakkuk didn't understand. It wasn't making sense in what the Lord was going on. And so he's asking, he's seeking the Lord. And maybe the same thing is, is true for us. Maybe you're not aware what God is doing in your life right now. What's going on? Maybe it doesn't make sense. Maybe you lost your job due to COVID and you're, gonna, you're going, what's going on? Or, or maybe you've been forced to move or do a, a job that you really you weren't prepared to do. And you're going, Man, Lord, none of this makes sense. Why is this happening this way? But as I shared a couple of weeks ago, God sees the big picture. Just because the immediate outcome isn't turning out the way you think it should, it does not mean that God has lost control. No, it's turning out just the way God has planned for your life. We must remember Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. I think of the struggles and, and, and the, the, the hundreds of thousands of believers who have been martyred for their faith. And things look really, really grim. And you say, well, how can that be? But then we see because of these people giving their lives for the Lord, willing to die for Him, the gospel has gone out and a great impact has been made in the world around us because of their faith and, and, and their sacrifice for the Lord. See, God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. But the one constant that we have in all of this is in the fact that we know that God loves us and nothing can separate us from the love of God so that whatever His plan is, we know that it's the best plan for your life, for my life. Well, here in chapter 1, Habakkuk is confused. He doesn't understand how God can allow something like this to happen. This brings us to point number 2, what he does. He's committed. Now, this is great. Instead of Habakkuk getting all bent out of shape and angry with God because he's not liking what God is going to do or understanding what God is doing, he decides, listen, I'm going to go, I'm going to separate myself, and I'm going to really seek the Lord even further. And that brings us now to chapter 2, verse 1, where we read Habakkuk say, I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. I love this. He says, Lord, I've heard what you said is going to happen to our nation. I'm not liking it. But that's just going to drive me to my knees in prayer all the more to seek you, to know, Lord, what you'd have me to do as a result of all of this, to, 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 to seek your will for my life. 
I think so often we look at what God is doing working corporately in our church, but He's also doing a work in our lives personally. And we need to be constantly seeking what He would have us to do for our lives personally. Lord, what would you have me to do in the days in which we are living? How can I make the greatest impact for the kingdom of God right now, Lord? So Habakkuk says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go up on this rampart, which is another word for tower. I'm going to go to my tower and I'm going to pray. Now I want to point out three important things that he does here in verse 1 of chapter 2. First, we see his determination. When he needed an answer, he says, I will stand my watch. He didn't say, well, you know, I really should seek the Lord. And, and, and you know, I think I got some time next week and I'm going to just set that aside. And next week I'm going to do it. Ne- next Tuesday, I'll break away one afternoon. No, he says, right now, I'm going to go and I'm going to seek the Lord. And you know, we're promised in Jeremiah 29:13, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. But I think so often we lack that determination. Sure, we know in our minds that we need to seek the Lord, and we have good intentions to seek the Lord, but sometimes we just don't get around to it. And I think a big component of people today do not see God moving in mighty ways all too often is because we give up way too soon. The Bible says we have not because we ask not. And I believe more often than not, God desires to answer our questions, but we just give up and say, oh, you know, the Lord's ways are not our ways, and so I guess I'll never know what God has for me. How about asking? I love the story of George Washington Carver, a great African-American Christian man. He said this, when I was young, I said to God, God, tell me the mystery of the universe. But God answered, that knowledge is for me alone. So I said, God, tell me the mystery of the peanut. Then God said, well, George, that's more nearly your size. And Carver's work resulted in the creation of 325 products made from peanuts, more than 100 products from sweet potatoes, and hundreds more from a dozen other plants. You can catch his monument about an hour and ten minutes to the west of us there in in the Osho. You see it for yourself. My point is, ask, pray, seek the Lord. Lord, would you show me? And then be determined to get that answer. Don't let the thought of not getting an answer stop you from asking. Lord, what's going on? Lord, what would you have me to do? Lord, how would you have me to respond? The next thing, the second thing to notice in Habakkuk's commitment to hear from God is not only did he have determination, he also had isolation. He says, I set myself on the rampart. I climbed to my tower. He got away from any of the distractions that would draw him away. In other words, had he lived in our time, he, you know, turned off his cell phone, unplugged the TV, turned off the computer, went up into his prayer closet and started to pray. He got away from all the distractions that would otherwise bombard him. And I do believe that many times we don't hear the voice of God because there's far too many other voices constantly ringing in our ears. But if you really want to hear from the Lord, there's no alternative to a quiet time, a quiet place, a quiet heart before the Lord. And just opening up God's word and praying, Lord, please speak to me through your word. So Habakkuk was determined. He isolated himself to hear. And then thirdly, we see that he prayed with expectation. He says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I will watch to see what he, the Lord, will say to me. Not what he might say to me. 
or what I hope he will say to me, or what I wish he would say to me. No, what he will say to me. You know, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it's impossible to please him. For you who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. There are many ways to please God, but none of them are apart from faith. And listen, if you don't believe that God is going to speak to your heart, then you're not going to hear anything from him. Well, how do you know if God will speak to you or not? Here's a simple way to know. When you seek the Lord, do you expect an answer? Are you really expecting an answer? Do you really expect God to speak to you or is it, well, I'll just kind of show up casually, slump in my chair and I'll... Oh, I wonder if God's really got anything to say to me. And just kind of open your Bible. Okay, Lord, speak to my heart. You know, and Judas hung himself. Okay, I don't know. Uh, speak to my heart again. Go now and do likewise. Okay, wait, wait a minute. You know, you're not hearing from the Lord. That's not from the Lord. And, and if that is your attitude in seeking the Lord, I seriously doubt you'll hear anything from the Lord. But if you sit down, and you're determined to hear from God, separated from the distractions of what's going on around you, stay in that place of expecting to hear from Him, I assure you, you will hear from Him. Have a good reading plan. You know, be committed to reading God's Word, and then listen to what God speaks to your heart. Write it down. Underline it. Highlight those verses. Habakkuk says, I'm going to seek God, I will get away, and I will hear what He has to say to me. That's the kind of faith that God honors. And what happens when we do these things, the same thing that happened with Habakkuk, God answered his prayer. He says to to Habakkuk, I have a plan, I have a schedule, and it's all going to work out in due time, so don't become impatient. And even though the outcome may not be what, what Habakkuk expected, God's plan does bring in comfort. And that's our third point, comfort it. Look at verse 2 now of chapter 2. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come. It will not tarry. It's great when after you've prayed, after you've waited on the Lord, sought the Lord, that you finally hear from the Lord. God does answer. And he says, here's what I want you to do personally, Habakkuk. I want you to get my message out that I'm going to give you. Get the message out so everyone, to everyone you can so they can be prepared for what's going to happen because judgment will surely come. It will not tarry. You know, folks, it's the same message that we have today. Judgment is coming. God's word says it will happen. And God calls us to get the word out. What's the message that God gives to us? That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. You know, I look around our world today and I see that it's exactly how the Lord said it would be prior to His return to this earth. He said it would be like the days of Noah. He said it would be like the, the days of Lot. Luke seventeen twenty six. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. We're told the days of Noah, according to Genesis 6.12, that God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Likewise, with the days of Lot, Luke 17.28-30, Jesus said, They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. 
But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We have God's word on this. We have the message. This will happen. Today, man has turned from God. Hatred is fueling men's hearts. Noah's days, the earth was corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. Today, we see that there's lawlessness in our land. Our law enforcement uh, is under attack. There's tension between the races. The, the, the crime is on the rise. Murder statistics are up. Then we have the days of Lot. Jude tells us this in Jude 7. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Judgment came to Sodom and Gomorrah because of sexual immorality. Yet we're living in a time when nothing is sexually immoral to the world we're living in. We all know, we have seen, I've seen the commercials, I've walked in the mall, you know, June is Gay Pride Month. I've heard it's been changed now to just Pride Month, which I think is probably more fitting, but it doesn't matter what you call it. God's Word calls it sin, sexual immorality. Might as well be called Grand Theft Auto Month and celebrate people's pride in how many cars they can steal. You know, I don't know. Or Alcoholics Unite Month, you know, and everyone celebrates people's pride by how many six-packs they can drink. Or, or Cover Their Neighbor's Wife Month. Whatever it is. My point is we, we all know Pride Month is just a celebration of sin. Both Old and New Testaments declare it. Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It's an abomination. Romans 1.27, likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Yet, today in America, country founded on Judeo-Christian principles, values, because I just quoted those two verses, there are those that would, would consider me a racist. Folks, we're living in the days of Lot. We're told in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Man, just like the days of Habakkuk. Yes, God is long-suffering. But he will exact righteous vengeance that will be eternal and rightly deserved upon those that deny him. But God has also given us his church a message to proclaim and not back down. Don't give up. Judgment is coming soon. Jesus is coming soon. But if we turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ, he will forgive us and spare us from the wrath that is to come. That's the message God has given us to share. And he says, I want you to run with this message. Get the message out to everyone you can because these things will happen just as the way I've said they would happen. Folks, Jesus is coming soon. We have his word on it. People need to get ready. They need to get their hearts right with God. And the message, again, Jesus came into this world to save sinners, no matter what the sin. That's the message that each one of us have been given. Written on our hearts the message that is meant to be shared with the lost and dying world around us. That he may run who reads it, God says in Habakkuk verse 2 there. In other words, those that read and hear the message we share, our prayers that they would run from sin and run to God. 
that the word of the Lord that we share would touch the hearts of those that don't know him. And they return from their sin and they return to Christ. Now, the Lord knew with Habakkuk, and he knows with us, not everyone will listen. Not everyone will share with, will receive what uh, the Lord would have for them. And that can be discouraging at times. When you love people so much and you want what you have and you want what, what rather you want what, you want them to have what you have. And, and you love them and, and you know what's best for them, but they just will not listen. God knows this and that's why I believe that He gives to Habakkuk and to us these, these three very wonderful assurances in, in this chapter to encourage us. And to strengthen us during the difficult days in which we're living in. Three things to encourage us. Number one, in verse 4, he says, The just shall live by faith. Number two, in verse 14, The earth shall be filled with God's glory. And number three, verse 20, The Lord is in His holy temple. Three things that God says, Listen, these are good things. These are things you can count on in this life. First, look at verse 4 of chapter 2. Yeah, some will not listen. But, behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Yeah, there are going to be those out there so lifted up with pride that they won't hear a word that you have to say to them. However, you who have been justified, you are to live by the faith that you have in Christ. One of the most important verses in the entire Bible. Many lives have been changed uh, dramatically because of it, Martin Luther especially. Really, verse 4 is quite clear, giving to us only two ways of man before God. Two groups of individuals which are in the world. First, behold, the proud, the soul is not upright in him. And second, the just shall live by faith. In other words, you could call them the lost and the saved. Those who have trusted in God and those who have not believed in God. Or as J. Vernon McGee puts it, the saints and the ain'ts. Now remember that Habakkuk went to the tower to wait and hear from the Lord. And here it is. The best answer, the straightest answer. God's answer is as clear as it can be. He explains how he deals with individuals and nations. You know, in geometry, the, the, the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. It's not something you have to prove. It is what it is. And in the same way, there are certain scriptures that are what they are. No explanation is needed. And this is one of them. Verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. Describes a group of people who are very proud. Either they're attempting to work out their own salvation, or they're just living for themselves, or they have pride in living their, their sinful lifestyle. What does God say about them? His soul, it's not upright in him. It's just not right. He or she is wrong, going down the wrong path, going about life the wrong way. There's a proverb that describes this. Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. And we know that there are many people today in our society that fit perfectly into that group. They've lifted themselves up with pride. They're, 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 they've puffed up their soul. And they go along their way. They think they have it all together. They think they have all the answers. That they're in control. Little do they know they're heading for destruction. It's like a slow-moving river heading for the Niagara Falls. Early on, they think, this is life, this, this is nice, this is my life, I can do whatever I want, go wherever I go, until you reach the falls. And it's the end. And if you go through life like that, then your end will be the same. But on the other hand, the second group of people that the Lord describes are the just shall live by His faith. These are ones flowing down the river 
on the way to the city of God. Now, before we move away from, from this important verse, verse 4, I need to point out that, that that verse is quoted three times in the New Testament. And there's a key statement in each one of the times that it's quoted. It's found in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians, and in the book of Hebrews. The book of Romans, its emphasis is on, upon justification by faith for salvation. It says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And the point there is the just, the one who has been justified by faith, shall live by faith. And, and that's the great message of the epistle to the Romans. Now in Galatians, the quote is this, Galatians 3.11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. There, there the emphasis is a little bit different. It's more on, on living. Galatians 2.20 tells us, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Romans, it's a gift of faith, justification by faith for salvation. In Galatians, the emphasis was not only on faith that saves, but faith that you live throughout your entire life. Then finally, the book of Hebrews quotes uh, Habakkuk, Hebrews 10.38. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And again, that also, the focus, the emphasis is on the word live. The just shall live by faith. And then we see in the following chapter, Hebrews 11, the, the hall of faith. These men and women who live by faith and their lives uh, are, are set as an example to us. So we see Habakkuk looked into the future and said, why God? But from our vantage point, we can look back and go, now we see why. We see what God was doing, why he sent his own people into captivity. It served as a purpose for the chastisement for their sin. But now the greater purpose we see is to bring the Savior into our world to save us by faith from our sins. Finally, we get to verses 5 through 20. I told you I'd save it for the end of our study. Because here God lays out the destruction that will come to the Chaldeans, that they're going to get what's coming to them. And that's going to really give, you know, back at least some, you know, uh, some comfort. The key verse, though, is in, in verse 14 with our second uh, of three encouragements, is the earth will be filled with God's glory. But look what leads up to that. Look at verse 5. Speaking of the Chaldeans, Babylonians, more specifically, probably directed at Belshazzar, who was the leader of Babylon when they were overthrown. The prophecy starts in verse 5. The Lord says, Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he's a proud man. He does not stay at home because he enlarges his desires. <coughs> Excuse me. Because he... Enlarges his desires as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied. He gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. How long? And him who loads himself with many pledges. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty because you have plundered many nations all the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. In other words, the Lord says to Habakkuk, don't you worry about the Chaldeans. 
Sooner or later, they are going to get what's coming to them. They will experience retribution, just as the people they devoured, would soon, they would soon be devoured. He goes on, look at verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples and sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the timbers will answer it. In other words, uh, when the time comes, the Babylonians, they'll have no security whatsoever. God is saying that the material things that they built up, and, and Babylon was, was beautiful materially, all of it's going to fall apart. All of it's going to be destroyed. Boy, isn't that true for us today? You know, can you remember when you, when you bought that new car? Oh, this is, oh, we need, this is a great car, you know. Or maybe you moved into that new house. Oh, this is great. Or you bought the, those new clothes. Oh, these are great clothes. Oh, these are great. And that car, you thought, okay, no one's eating in the car. No, no eating in the car. And now you have french fries under both seats that have been there for at least four years. Or the new house. Oh, this is great. This is our new house. Okay, this is great. Everything is wonderful. This is awesome. And now the heating, the air, the plumbing, electricity is all gone out. And you're going, oh, man. And those new clothes that you had to have, they sit in a bag with spaghetti stains all over them, ready to give to charity. (laughs) Oh, if I just had this new car, if I just had this new house, those new clothes. And all that just ends up just being unsatisfied. It doesn't satisfy. But in heaven, I know we looked at this a while back in our studies in Revelation. When we get to heaven, everything's going to stay new. Everything's going to be new. Complete satisfaction. Something that this world and the things in this world could never give us. God is saying all these things that the Babylonians trusted and all their treasures, all their their, their things that they had, it's all going to fall apart. Why? Because this world will never satisfy us. Look now, verses 12 through 19. Woe to him who built a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink and be exposed as uncircumcised. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you and utter shame will be on your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and of all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that its maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies, that the maker of its mold should trust in it to make mute idols. Woe to him who says to wood, Awake, to silent stone arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. You know, in these verses, verses 6 through 19, there's five woes that I want to point out, and then we'll close and we'll enter into time of communion. And the sad thing in all of these is that we can take take each one of these woes and we can apply it to our culture, our society today. Same sins that God hates and and are prevalent today. First one, verse 6, Woe to him who increases what is not his. In other words, woe to them who takes by force things that don't belong to them. 
Man, we see it in our streets today. You know, we have you know people that that they they're looking for any small reason to start a riot so they can break the doors and the windows of the stores and come out with the TVs and and the phones and those things. Woe to him who increases what is not his. Second woe, verse nine. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. Covetousness was a sin of Babylon along with drunkenness, but their covetousness was a kind of evil coveting. They wanted what didn't belong to them and took it no matter what. You know, we're told not to covet anything, not to covet our neighbor's property, our neighbor's wife, our neighbor's wealth. Third woe, verse 12, Woe to him who built a town with bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. In other words, they would go in, they would destroy a town and take everything they, they have from that town and bring it back to Babylon and build up their town. They became rich uh, by warfare. Verse 15, woe number 4. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. Now this one, we see how tragic it is that liquor is something that leads to the breaking down of all sorts of morals. It leads men to committing sins that otherwise they probably would not commit. You know, dishonesty among many other sins. Drunkenness leads to gross immorality. It leads to divorce. It leads to the breaking up of homes. It leads to a life of sin. That's why only through the power of the Holy Spirit working in a person's life, they can never break free from it. But I think what is even worse with these Babylonians were that they were being seductive in their partying. They were, they were getting people drunk and taking advantage of them sexually. Nothing different than what we see going on in our culture today. You hear of date rape drugs, you know, or what used to be called, I don't know if they still call it, that you know, slipping a mickey, an alcoholic drink laced with a psychoactive drug given to someone without their knowledge so they can be taken of advantage of. We see it today. Woe to them, the Lord says. Then finally, the fifth woe, verse 19. Woe to him who says to wood, Awake, to silence don't arise, it shall teach. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. In other words, woe to them that, that worship idols, that, that put the trust in, in, that, 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 in inanimate objects. You know, we think that the, the fourth woe of drunkenness is pretty bad, but that's not the greatest sin. The greatest sin really is a sin of idolatry. It's a sin of, of false religion, turning to an idol instead of turning to God. That's the worst uh, sin of all. An idol is anything that takes the place of God. It's a turning away from the living and true God to follow something that is false. And I believe that the downfall of a nation begins with idolatry. It begins with turning away from the one and true living God. You know, we, we think that, that idolatry has gone out of style, that no one today in this country is bowing down to some idol made of wood. But that's not true. Again, an idol is anything that takes the place of the Lord. And I think this past week I heard a new word. Maybe you heard this. It's called scientism. Uh, Albert Moeller, he's a, a, a Baptist minister. He does a, a daily broadcast of the worldview. And, and uh, he said this on this, and this is where I heard it from. There's only one ultimate source, scientism. It says there's only one ultimate source of truth, and that's whatever comes out of the scientific worldview, the scientific method, or even what scientists call science. In other words, science has become our idol. Science is the ultimate authority and that scientists alone get to establish the rules by which science will be made legitimate and will be conducted. 
And it covers everything from abortion to climate change to vaccinations to, to drugs to genders to behaviors. Science has become our God. And what science says goes regardless of what the Bible says. That's what we're seeing. In other words, man has become his own God. Which started way back at the fall of men in the garden. Satan's temptation was that you will be as God. And man has become his own God. Yet God says to us today, He is a jealous God. God says, I made you. I created you. I have redeemed you. And I want you. It's me. It's not you. So that when a man or woman turns their back on God, they're doing the worst thing that anyone can possibly do. Because then you become your own God. And that's when all these woes we just read about set in. Greed, violence, covetousness, murder for gain, drunkenness, all a result of living outside of God's will for your life. Same sins that are polluting the nations today, God hates these sins today just as much as He did in Habakkuk's day. Now, no doubt hearing all of this, all the evil in the world, how God's going to judge, if I were Habakkuk, I would be pretty bummed out. I'd be going, oh, man. But, I believe, again, the best part of chapter 2 are the promises that are there meant to encourage us as we go along. Remember verse 4, the just shall live by faith. Don't give up. Keep walking in faith. Keep believing in the God who saved you. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. That promise still stands, folks. One day, and I believe very soon, God's glory shall one day fill this earth when Jesus Christ returns, puts down all sin, and establishes his righteous kingdom. The earth in Habakkuk's day was certainly not filled with much glory, nor is it today, but it will be. That's God's promise. It will happen just as he says it will. Finally, the Lord tells Habakkuk this, and it's our last encouragement, our comfort, verse 20. But the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him. Recognize, God is still on his throne. Don't freak out. Don't freak out. We have nothing to worry about. No need to complain or doubt when we see our nation turn its back on God, when we see seen, it's that sin is just running rampant. For the believer, we can rest knowing that God is in control, knowing that he's still ruling and reigning over the affairs of the nations, Listen, Habakkuk thought that God was uninterested in the problems of, of life, but he discovered that God was very much interested, very much concerned, and he was working out his plan in his time. That's why he would say, the just shall live by faith. That's why we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Because if we look at ourselves and we look at our circumstances, we're going to be discouraged, and we're going to want to quit. But if we look up to God by faith, and look ahead to the glorious return of Jesus Christ to this earth, then we're going to be able to go on and carry on in victory. I've always loved the quote by Corrie ten Boom, a woman by the grace of God who survived the Nazi concentration camp. She said this, If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. I like that. Don't be confused. Be committed and be comforted. As we close, as we enter a time of communion, I believe for us as believers, when we look to Christ and what He's done for us and going to the cross for us, dying for my sin, dying for your sins, so that we don't have to face judgment, then you know what? It should not matter to us if we've got to swim upstream against the current. 
That we stand up in this generation to run with the message that God has given to us when we look at all that Jesus has done for us. What's the message? That God is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever, whoever you are, if you believe in Him, you will have everlasting life. You will not perish. That's the message God has given us to share the good news of Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners. And let me say, it does not matter what sin the sacrifice Jesus made upon the cross is sufficient to forgive even the most vilest of sinners. Folks, the time is short. Message is clear. Come to Christ today. Remember the flood of Noah. Remember the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah of Lot's day. I personally believe the day of judgment is coming much, much sooner than many may think. It's been said, if you look to the Lord with an eye of faith, God will look down upon you with the eye of grace. If you don't know Christ this morning, please, I encourage you, come to Him today. And as we come to the communion table, it gives us a a chance, an opportunity to make sure we're right with the Lord, to make sure we're on the same page as the Lord, that He is number one in our lives. And there's nothing in our lives that's going to hinder our walk with Him. It's a time that we can celebrate what He's done for us upon the cross, remembering the awesome sacrifice that was made that gives us this relationship that we have with Him. So again, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, give your life to Him this morning. Participate in communion with us. For us as as believers, continue to walk the walk, keeping our eyes on our Lord, the author and the finisher of our faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time together. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to You. They're not born again today. Lord, touch their heart. Help them to see their need for You. Help them to make that commitment to follow you all the days of their lives. And Lord, for us as believers, I pray, God, that you would bless this time of communion, Lord, as we look to the cross and look what you did for us upon the cross. Lord, that that would inspire us, that would encourage us to know that you've had this plan all along, even before the foundations of the earth, Lord, you've called us and you've chosen us to be one of your people. And so, Lord, we can rejoice as we look back at the cross, we can rejoice because your word says for us to do this in remembrance of you until you come back. Lord, and we recognize that's close. Lord, when we're in heaven, we'll no longer have to do this to remember. We'll be in your presence and we long for that day. But until that time, Lord, we practice this to stir our hearts, to bring us closer to you, to examine our hearts and make sure we're right with you and to bring you glory. Bless this time of communion, we pray.